Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, is Stephen King really weird? The question suggests that creating horrific art, whether it's books, movies, or paintings, means that the creator himself has to be a little off. It's almost as bad a question as where do you get those weird ideas from? The horror genre is something I've dedicated most of my life to. And one thing I've discovered about the people who create this stuff is that they are some of the kindest, most human, most generous people I've ever met. First of all, we are, by definition, outsiders. But most importantly, I think it's because we dream awake. Our living is to exercise our fears and share them with you, to safely journey into the darkest corners of your mind and safely shed a little light amongst the cobwebs. We live our nightmares, act them out for you, make them real in a way to engage you and let you live through them, whether it's a zombie apocalypse or a giant spider invasion or that neighbor next door who just cooked and ate the little girl who lives down the lane. I feel safer around the people who create the horror imagery of our lives than I do around the repressed stranger who tamps down his fears until he explodes in a geyser of bloody violence. From Stephen King to John Carpenter to Clive Barker to Toby Hooper, you couldn't hope to meet a kinder crew with a better sense of humor. And the whole point of this podcast is for you to get to know them for who they are as well as what they make. One member of this fraternity is Ernest Dickerson, with a list of credits, horror and otherwise, that's longer than a Russian novel. He started as a cinematographer and has become one of the most prolific directors I've ever known. He's a wonderful filmmaker and a great and gentle human being. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. I don't know if you remember where we met, but I remember very well. Do you? Was it at the Laserdisc store? Oh, it might have been Dave's Lasers, which was great. But actually, no, it was uh, on the set of Demon Knight. Ah. And uh, I was working with Gil Adler, and okay. we were doing Freddy's Nightmares, or what? I think it was Freddy's Nightmares at the time, and you were shooting, and Jada Pinkett was covered in blood. Right. And I met you there and found you to be this incredibly passionate horror fan and knowledgeable horror fan. And our paths have crossed a lot since then, professionally and socially. But just from that time, I got so excited by your passion for this project. And is that something that started as a kid? Yeah, I think so. You know, growing up in Newark, New Jersey, in the 50s and the 60s, you know, horror films, when they came out, was a big thing for us. You know, we would always go see the newest one. You know, when The Tingler came out, I remember that was the movie we had to go see. Did you go to one of the theaters that buzzed? No. Well, I didn't. I, I'm not sure if there was any buzzing going on. I didn't get any indication of that. <laughs> but the the but the uh, the ushers were in on the the thing. You know where where uh, the screen goes black and and uh, there was an usher who laid himself down in, in the front underneath the screen and all the other ushers went down and picked him up and carried him out. Oh my God, that's <clears> a good one. And I think. Tingle came out in what, 58? I think so. So I, I must have been about seven years old. Yeah. And, you know, for a seven year old, that could be, you know, pretty, pretty traumatic, you know. That's pretty intense. If, if you don't know about the Tingler, if you don't have gray hair, um, William Castle was the extraordinary B movie producer of the era. And every one of his movies released with a gimmick. And in this case, several theaters had buzzers installed in seats, like every third or fourth seat in a theater. Yeah. And every time the tingler would show up, it. Yeah, that was it. I mean, I used to, I remember convincing my mom to take me to see Rodan. When when it, wow. when it screened in the theater, the Mysterians when it screened in the theater, I was a teenage Frankenstein, um, all those, and then um, you know Saturday matinees going to a uh, one of the best Saturday matinee double bills I ever saw was 
This Island Earth, and The Pit and the Pendulum. Wow. And that was great. It was a pretty good one. That so, had to be, well, Pit and the Pendulum was 62, I think? Yeah, somewhere, yeah. So This Island Earth was earlier than that. Yeah, 55. Yeah. So I think I saw this not long after Pit and the Pendulum came out. So, um, so it was definitely in the 60s, in the early 60s, because I was still in elementary school. But um, the, the newest, latest horror film was always a big thing for us. For every, all the kids in the projects growing up, you know, we had to go see it. That's amazing. So it was a gang of kids who got together and like every Saturday morning or something? Sometimes. Or, yeah. yeah, sometimes, sometimes I just go by myself, you know. Um, if I couldn't get anybody else to go with me, I'd just go by myself. Was it always horror movies when you were a kid or were there other genres? Was it just film? Uh, it was, uh, there were others, mostly adventure stories like, you know, uh, The Great Escape. The Vikings. Oh, yeah. You know, um, you know, I remember going to see Ben Hur, you know, when, and uh, that played at the same theater for like ever, forever. I saw that in the drive in. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Wow. But, um, California boy. <laughs> uh, uh, Day of the Triffids, you know, um, Village of the Damned, Children of the Damned, all them, you know, those were sometimes I just go by myself. Yeah, yeah. I think I probably went to the movies more more by myself than I did with other friends. It's amazing because I, I I don't know why I don't know didn't know Joe Dante back in those days. That's right, Jersey Boys. He was Jersey, and and he went to a lot of the same theaters that I went to, and and he remembers all the the same double bills that I remember. So we probably passed each other. Well, you actually worked your way into filmmaking as a, as a cinematographer, as a director of photography. And this period of your growing up has a lot of influence, the Roger Corman films, the, the Mario Bava films. Mm. And your work is very stylized as a cameraman using these primary colors and contrasting colors with one another. Did you find that came out of the, the genre? Um, I... It probably did, uh, but I was uh, interested in still photography and really explored color a lot of that before I was able to get my hands on a movie camera. But, um, uh, you know, works by cinematographers like Jack Cardiff, who was like mm. the, the, the premier British color cinematographer, you know, his work like in Black Narcissus and The Red Shoes, you know, that stuff had a really big effect on me you know, using color as a, as a storytelling means. And also when I finally saw Moby Dick, mm. uh, John Huston's Moby Dick and yep. written and, by Ray Bradbury. Yeah. The screenplay. Yeah, still yeah. a beautiful screenplay. One of beautiful. my favorite films, one yeah. of my favorite films, but, and, and around the same time reading an article that an interview that John Huston did in Playboy, where he talked about using color, how every film should have its own palette, its own approach to color, its own look. And, uh, that made a lot of sense to me. So, so I think that, you know, that kind of took me into it. I rediscovered Mario Bava, I think, when I shot um, uh, some public service announcements uh, for uh, Marty Scorsese. Uh -huh. and, um, and we were just hanging out and feeling each other out, doing the location scouts and trying to figure out what the look of, the, of, of these public service announcements were going to be. And the basic thing was that Drugs could lead to unprotected sex, which could lead to AIDS, which could lead to death. You know, <laughs> that was the PSA. Oh boy! So, you know, Marty and I just kind of like feeling each other out and talking about movies, and we wound up talking about Mario Baba. And it was from that that the the look of the of these PSAs came out, and um, and he actually sent me some some. Uh, some VHSs of, uh, you know, Blood and Black Lace. And, um, you know, so it was Mario Bava and, and Sam Fuller we were talking about. But I think mm -hmm. the color, the use of color came from Bava, definitely. You're talking about some very theatrical looks that aren't just naturalistic or realistic. They go almost to the point of surrealistic or, or heightened super realistic. Mm -hmm. And uh, did, did you find yourself drawn to working on a stage more than uh, on a sound stage more than on uh locations no um uh no it was uh i've done a lot of my work has been largely locations because mm -hmm. you know uh i've never really worked on like a big big huge budget film right. uh, they've all been pretty low budget 
But um, being able to use uh, natural light, uh, maybe mix it with uh, my lighting um, to to get a look. I, you know, something like uh, do the right thing. When I, I was going to bring thing. that up. That is so heightened and, and yeah. beautiful, and the, the use of the ambers and the reds and and that side of the spectrum versus natural nighttime light. Yeah, well, that was that was um, that was an attempt to really get the audience to feel the heat, and so I limited the color scale to the the, the reds and the yellows and the warms um, uh, because uh, it was all supposed to take place on one day. So, and luckily Spike bought me in for uh, a good month of pre-production so I could lay down some ground rules in terms of where the street that we were going to shoot on, you know, that had to run north and south for me, but also working with the production designer and the costume designer and limiting the colors, um, you know, making sure that there were very few blues because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, part of my study was into psychological effects of color, you know, and, you know, the warmer colors, reds and stuff like that, they have a, they have a, an effect on the human body. They actually speed up the heart rate. Well, the film almost feels like it's sweating. Yeah, that's that was what I wanted to do. So, now you started your uh, affiliation with Spike Lee in film school. You went to Howard University, right, and then you went to NYU. Yeah, Howard University for undergrad. I mm-hmm. got my undergraduate degree in architecture. Ah, okay. And uh, took a minor in color photographic illustration, and then I applied to NYU Film School in the graduate department. After a couple of years of working as a medical photographer at, wow. at Howard University Medical School and Hospital. That must have given you a little bit more basis grounding in your horror films. Well, it made future. me really a stickler about the real color of blood. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a lot of it. Those Bava movies didn't really have that. Yeah. No, no, that old <laughs> hammer like technicolor blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell me how that collaboration began. I mean, were you doing student films together? In the in the first year, we weren't allowed to work together because we were in two separate sections. Mm. Um, and um, so, but we, you know, when we first met, you know, we started joking with each other about our schools because our schools are our homecoming rivals. Oh, and, okay. And, and Howard University routinely uh, beats uh, Morehouse's ass in, in homecoming football. <laughs> So, you know, we would tease about that. A rivalry. But, you know, when you're in film school, it gets down to the business. What you're there for. And we started talking about the movies that we really wanted to make. Um, and it was interesting because at that time, one of our dreams was to do the autobiography of Malcolm X. Which um, came to fruition years later. And, um, and But we weren't able to work together until the second year. Um, and I was a cinematography major, but the great thing about NYU is that you could still write and direct your own films. And actually, my third film um, from that first year, which was done non-sync sound, was a bit of a horror film. Really? Yeah. Um, it was about a, a musician, a jazz musician, who having is composing a piece and he encounters writer's block, and so he decides to just go out and and walk it off and he gets kidnapped and taken to this um, this uh, mental hospital and while he's in there his whole reality starts to turn he starts to have hallucinations uh-huh. eventually he realizes that it's a CIA operation doing mind control experiments nice and so he's he's a subject in the mind control and he gets out but he takes a secret with him and he's kind of like on the run for the rest of his life you know because they want to hunt him down and get him so that was my first horror film in a way, you know, I guess you could say. Um, but, you know... Uh, Were these shot in 16 millimeter? Yeah, yeah, 16 millimeter black and white. Right. Well, uh, your, uh, Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop was your first feature collaboration with, with uh, Spike, right? Well, that was uh, his graduate thesis film. Right. Um, but you shot, <clears throat> you were the DP on that. I was the DP on mm-hmm. that. I actually shot a film for the second year, uh, which was called Sarah, which was... Uh, he adapted a, a short story that was about sibling rivalry at Thanksgiving dinner. And that was our first time working together. Then I did Joe's Bed-Stuy uh, for the third year, which won the Student Academy Award. Mm-hmm. And that's actually the film that got me my first feature as a DP because John Sayles saw it when he was trying to put together right. what ultimately became Brother from Another Planet. Right. So that was your first feature was with John Sayles. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was. I had always thought it was She's Gotta Have It. Mm-mm. That was a couple of years later. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Now, She's Gotta Have It got tremendous attention. Yeah. And it was a black and white film. Mm-hmm. Um, Spike Lee has basically made a career all about political and social commentary movies. You chose not to go that route once you started directing yourself. Was that a conscious decision to just tell stories or genre work or... Um, well, you weren't I've, as motivated in that direction. Well, I've always felt that, you know, if you're going to, for me, uh, genre has always been a way of, of talking about social issues. Yeah, without beating anybody over the head. You, you know, because my first film, Juice, uh, was conceived as a film noir. And my co-writer, uh, Gerard Brown, and I wrote it uh, about eight, nine years before we were finally able to get it made. We, we wrote it around uh, 81, right mm. after I got out of NYU. And it was intended to be a film noir where the lead characters were 16 and 17 years old. Really? Yeah. Uh, but nobody would touch it then. And, and so we weren't able to make it until 91. Mm. But um, Only a decade. <laughs> you know, well, yeah. And now it's about to uh, celebrate its 25th anniversary. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, this year, I mean, we just, um, we just came out with a, a 25th anniversary Blu-ray and, uh, and DVD, uh, which has a, an amazing extras package, if mm. I do say so. But it's really a labor of love. It's the end of a six-year journey that my wife, Rose, undertook because she tried to get it done years ago for the 20th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Nobody would touch it. She had to really? track down the rights because when we did Juice, it was a negative pickup. And Paramount was the, the, the releasing studio. So she went to Paramount. She found out the rights had gone on to MGM. And oh. she found out the rights had gone on to Warner Brothers. So she had to follow it around. And then she had to get them interested in actually doing it. So, But it, it finally did kick off. But the first genre stuff I ever did really was... Um, as a DP, I, Tales from the Tales Dark from Side. The dark side. Yeah. yeah. Which was a very low budget, uh, Laurel Entertainment. It was uh, no budget. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when those were being made. Yeah. And, uh, I had forgotten that you had shot like the whole first season or something. The first season, I was one of two camera crews, or yeah. one of two DPs working in, New, in the New York area, right. working in New York. And there was other camera crews working in California. And actually, that's where I, I met, uh, uh Michael Gornick. Uh, got a chance. I I shot one of his his uh, episodes, and we got along great. And Michael actually, had been the director of photography for uh, Dawn of the Dead, and uh-huh. uh, and worked with George Romero in that regard. I think yeah. his first film with George was Martin. Was Martin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And then he was a producer on the stand when we did that with Laurel Entertainment. Mm-hmm. He did all of our post production stuff. Michael. Well, Michael, when he went down to shoot Day of the Dead. Uh, had me come down and shoot second unit. Really? I didn't realize that. Yeah. So all that stuff with the alligators sitting on top of the money and, and, the, and the deserted city down there, that was, all, wow. that was all stuff that I shot. And that's where I first met Greg Nicotero. Really? Because he was making the zombies to, you know, to... I, I know they started making up the zombies at 3 a.m. and uh. were gradually releasing some of them to us. And all during the day, we would get more and more and more zombies. And the final shot was going to be one high angle shot with all these zombies walking down the street with the camera camera looking down on them. So, yeah, that's where I first met Nicotero. If only you'd had drones then, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Greg is going to be on later in the year, but uh, um, we uh, that led to a pretty amazing relationship. I mean, we'll get into Walking Dead. Well, we can get into it now. I mean, Greg is a producer on that. He's the N of KNB, the makeup effects superstars. Mm-hmm. And you have probably done more episodes of Walking Dead than anyone, am I right? Mm-hmm. At one point, I haven't done any in the past couple of couple years, seasons, couple yeah. of seasons. I got out of the loop when I when I shot my film, my last, my latest film ah. in Curacao. But um, uh, I think Nicotero is now directed more than anybody. Right, the opening and closing <laughs> episodes of each season—that's the plum spots. Yeah. yeah. Now that he's producing, but he's become a terrific director. Yeah. From being a, an effects guy, did that directly result in your work on The Walking Dead because Greg was involved? Or? Actually, no. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember how that actually happened. It was, um, I think, uh, a writer 
uh, who was going to do some uh, Chick Egley. Mm-hmm. I worked with Chick Egley on Dexter, and mm-hmm. we really just hit it off. And then when he went to do, I think the first season of Walking Dead, I think he was one of the writers on the first season. He gave them, he recommended me to them, mm-hmm. and um, and I had met Darabont. I, I remember. I met Frank at right. Dave's Laser. Yeah, there it was. <laughs> First met Frank Darabont at Dave's Laser, and uh, that was our pub. Yeah, that was it. Was I miss it? I miss yeah. it because it was now. I just live practically right around the corner from it. You know? <laughs> me too. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, yeah, they brought me down to do it, and uh, I did. So you did a season one episode when Frank was still uh, running the ship. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, the the next to the last episode in season one, mm-hmm. the penultimate episode, and uh, they like what I did because they had me come back and do four for four episodes for season two. That's a big percentage of a season, including the season finale, which was huge, humongous. I remember. Well, Boy. tell me the did you see a difference between the Darabont regime and the the next regime that took over? Did you feel it? I no not so much um so it was all behind the scenes behind the closed doors yeah it was it was personalities frank was great um and you know you could tell that he you know he really championed filmmakers to come in and and do it um but um you know made you know some some great acquaintances you know uh gail ann hurt had become a you know somebody whose work i had admired for many years Mm -hmm. you know um become great a good producer. friend and stuff and a great producer. Um, uh, it, it became a family. So even when Frank left, it's still everybody that you still dealt with on a day-by-day basis was still there. So, And even though Frank had his problems with people, he encouraged everybody to stick around and keep their jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he did. That's he a did. pretty bold thing to do. Yeah. And honorable. Now, one thing I didn't realize is that you shot music videos with Miles Davis and Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, um, I I did the Born in USA video. Uh, How did I not know that? uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Because John Sayles directed it. Wow. And we did it not long after. All three Jersey boys. Yeah. And we did it not long after after Brother came out. um, And he called me up and asked me to do it. And it was and it was cool because that's was uh, one of the f- few times I had ever come out to L.A. because we shot we shot a lot of the documentary stuff in in factories and pubs and bars in in the New Jersey area, but then we came out here to New, uh, to Los Angeles to shoot the concert stuff and uh, met Jonathan Demi because mm-hmm. he was hanging out with us for a while and he wound up becoming a friend later on and and actually had a chance to work with Michael Ballhouse. You know, wow. Ballhouse operated for me. Oh know? my God! <laughs> so <laughs> That's it was. Pretty amazing. It was cool. And then the Miles Davis video was uh, one that Spike directed, mm-hmm. and that was really amazing for me because some of the earliest music I remember hearing in my life is Miles Davis, because jazz is, had always been a part of my household. And, and Anita Baker. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing uh, shoulder rubbing you've done in the music world. But you know, doing music videos, it was better being a cinematographer than a director. I I, I directed one music video and I hated it. <laughs> I did part of one. <laughs> I did a Michael Jackson one. That's the most expensive video ever made, but it stopped after two weeks of shooting and three years later was finished with Stan Winston. So, wow! Yeah. Wow. There's an experience that we'll we'll tell one day. Okay. I want to hear about that one. (laughs) It was great, actually. Um, So when you went to film school, were you planning on being a filmmaker or were you concentrating more on cinematography? Or did you want to actually write and direct movies? Um, Cinematography was my first love. Uh, That's what drew me into filmmaking because I grew up wondering why some movies looked the way they did, Mm. you know. I don't like the way that one looks, but I love the way that one. Why does that one look like that? And then uh, my uncle, who has probably been the influence on me to make most of the decisions in my life that I've made, uh, and he was the first man to put a camera in my hands. Uh, mm-hmm. we were, I'll never forget it. We were sitting watching David Lean's Oliver Twist one night, and that was one of those movies I always wondered why it looked like that. Cause it I is a gorgeous way. film. Yeah. 
And my uncle just happened to remark, he was looking at it, you know, the opening scene, and he says, God, this photography is amazing. And I said, photography? Hmm. Hmm. The light bulb went off. Movies are photographed. Okay. And he had been uh, dabbling. He was an artist in residence at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and he had been dabbling in, in black and white photography and doing his own prints and stuff and showing us his prints. And I was like, you know, beautiful stuff. And so that's how that started. And he helped me buy my first camera. And what was that first camera? It was an Exacta VX500 with a 50 millimeter lens. Wow. 50 millimeter 2.8 lens. I'll never forget it. And it had a look down, what is it, the sports finder, the look down finder? Cause it was, <laughs> oh, what a, I see. Yeah, it got yeah, kind of yeah. clumsy kind of shooting it. But, uh, but um, you know, he's, you know, my, my dad died earlier when I was, uh, when I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. And my uncle, you know, my mother's brother kind of like became more of a father to me, you know, just in, in terms of, you know, turning me on, the, you know, different art, you know, getting me interested in filmmaking. We, we used to sit up late at night and watch movies, you know, all kinds of old classic films, you know. Um, so he was your 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 first teacher in, in, yeah, in a regard. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like you discovered these things together for him, too. It opens well, he, he yeah. turned me in the right direction. He definitely yeah. turned me in the right direction. Um, but I, um, but my mother be, uh, worked at the New Republic Library, and um, and so I when I was in high school, I got a job at the library and I had a chance to walk around and I found interesting books, you know, that's, you know, so I started reading a lot of heart. That's how I discovered H.P. Lovecraft, mm. you know. Um, I remember reading Dune not long after, I think it first came out. I think this was around 68. Wow. Um, getting Dune, you know, and just finding a lot of uh, older books, you know, mm. and, and newer books. And then, but... It became a visual thing for you. You didn't. Yeah, want it always to was a visual yeah. thing. Yeah. So yeah. how did? Well, first of all, who was the one music video you directed? I interrupted you. I think it was Tevin Campbell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was Strawberry Letter Number Twenty Three. Is that Strawberry Letter Number Twenty Three? Whatever. You got me. Yeah. <laughs> ding 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 ding. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. So. How did you make that transition then from being a cameraman, from being a cinematographer, into directing? What motivated you to want to make that jump? Well, what had happened was that um, right after getting out of uh, NYU, um, I, you know, we wrote the script. We wrote the script, Juice, Mm -hmm. because... uh, even though I was a cinematography major, I figured there there were two ways I could go. I could either go into cinematography or directing. And uh, even though cinematography was starting to take off, we we wrote uh, Juice to hopefully debut ourselves as a as a writer director team. Hmm. And but as I said, you know, nobody wanted to touch it, and the script wound up sitting on the shelf for about eight years. Meanwhile, my career as a cinematographer took off. My co-writer, Gerard, um, uh, became a writer-in-residence at uh, Joe Papp's Public Theater. Oh, wow. And, you know, he was putting on plays and stuff. So, you know, life moved on, and I was doing okay as a, as a cinematographer. And then Gerard got a new agent, and she wanted to see... She was a California agent, and she wanted to see some some uh, some writing material and he showed her the screenplay of juice and she automatically said why is this just sitting here why aren't you doing something with this and he told her he said well we, we tried but everybody said forget about it nobody wants to make this movie you'll never get it made but the temperature had changed in the yeah. ensuing eight years so this was this was around uh 90 this is around 90 and so she started taking it around um and automatically there were several studios that wanted to buy it, several production companies um, that wanted to buy it. And it was one that was, you know, really come up with a great price. And we were thinking, wow, okay, you know, you know, we'll see what happens. Then, you know, we started getting notes. Then I got a, ah, I development. Got a, I got a, I got a page of uh, 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 actually a three-page list of prospective directors. Oh, my. My name was the very last one on the third page. <laughs> And all these other directors. And then we started... Who getting, was at the top of that list? I don't even remember. Oh, okay. I don't even remember. Um, I think I just kind of like threw it away. Um, 
but uh, uh, we started getting notes, um, uh, little notes saying, you know, we think it's a little bit too dark, you know, it's too edgy, you know, maybe you need to think about making it more of a comedy. Oh, great. You know, lighten it up, you know, make it, you know, and put a dog <clears> in it. Yeah. And, you know, you know, maybe you can cast, you know, there weren't too many young African-American teenagers working back in those days. You had Malcolm Jamal Warner, and he was a name that they suggested for for the film. <laughs> and all these uh, these suggestions were coming through, and Gerard and I just looked at each other, and we said, nah, this is, this is going to get developed into something we do not want our names on. And right. we, we took the script back. We said, thank you, but no thank you. Interesting. Hey, I'm a cinematographer. I can just keep on doing it. Yeah, you got yeah. a good job. Yeah. And then I got a phone call. I got a phone call. Uh, young British guy, David Heyman, who said he had read my script uh, and he wanted to talk to me about it. And so I met him at a place called the Pink Teacup in New York, which is a, a soul food restaurant down in the village. Nice. I hope it's still there. We had brunch and, and he asked me, he wanted to know how I saw the film. And I said, it has to be gritty. It has to be real. It's got to be shot on the streets. I said, there's nobody we know of that can play these roles. We've got to get unknowns. Um, and, um, and, I, and it's a film noir. It's got, to be, it's got to be rough and tough. And after I said my spiel, he said, I like what you have to say about it. Um, do you want me to get funding for it? I said, yeah. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> and so... We made it for three million dollars, um, which is not a bad budget for a film of that nature yeah. at that time. Yeah. And and we we did we we you know got a casting director and we went after all unknowns. She went to high schools that are performing arts, local theater groups, church theater groups, and she went through hundreds and hundreds of, of young actors um, and narrowed it down. And um, and one day uh, she wanted me to see this guy who was going to come in named Tretch uh, from Naughty by Nature. And um, and he came in and auditioned and he had this guy hanging out with him. And uh, Tretch did a pretty good job. But I was having a hard time finding somebody to play this character, Bishop. You know, I, I just wasn't finding the right guy and and. and there was this guy that was hanging out with Tretch, and I said, well, "What about you, man? You wanna, you wanna audition?" He said, "Me?" He said, "Yeah, why not?" This is one of those Hollywood stories. I don't believe you for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave him the side, you know, the a scene involving the character Q that eventually went to Omar Epps. I gave him the side. He went away. He came back, did a pretty decent job, but something just told me to try something. I said. Can you stay a little bit longer? And he said, yeah. I said, well, can you try this role? And I gave him the sides for Bishop. And he said, sure. And he went away and he came back. And it was amazing because he had captured the character. And afterwards, I mean, you know, casting, you never let him know right away that, mm -hmm. oh, man, you, you know, you're, you're the guy. I said, yeah. I said uh, what's your name? He said, Tupac. <laughs> I said, okay, Tupac what? Tupac Shakur. I said, oh, any relation to Asada Shakur? He said, yeah, that's my aunt. Wow. I said, Tupac, that's an interesting name. He said, yes, it's a Mayan deity. And I said, uh, okay, well, we have your contact information. We'll be in touch. And he walked out and we just looked at each other. We said, whoa, he's the best one we've seen so far. He's, he's the one. And that's how we found Tupac. Amazing. I mean, this movie, Juice, I mean, it made some careers. First of all, Obviously, Tupac exploded from this. But so did you. You became a director now and uh, a movie that was very well received. You know, it, it, it must have changed your life in certain ways because you were no longer the cameraman. Well, not right away, because actually what it would happen was that after Juice was done, then I went and photographed Malcolm X. Which, and, would you say that's your biggest canvas you've had as a DP? Yeah, probably the longest schedule. Mm -hmm. um, you know, more real movie schedule, right? You know? Studio movies, <laughs> you somehow. know, yeah. and, uh, but it, it also kind of kept me from working for a couple of years because I had directed my own, my first film and then I went and photographed another film and 
my agent was telling me, well, people don't know whether you're a, a, a director or a cameraman, you know, so they don't know what to do with you. I said, well, you know, it's obvious, isn't it? <laughs> I said, no, well, yeah, to us, but not to everybody else. So I wasn't able to get a job for about a couple more years. Wow. Um, and then the jobs, the stuff that was coming my way was, you know, they were like, you know, really, really bad stuff. I got, mm. I got sent a rap musical, a script for a rap musical called Yo Alice. Oh, <laughs> I said, no, no, no. Did you find yourself getting basically African-American stuff? Well, I mean, I'm cool with that, but, you know, but it was all, you know, really just bad stories, you know, right. Yo Alice, you know, <laughs> uh, shit. I want to see that movie. <laughs> You know, um, and I was looking, I was actually looking for a thriller. I was looking for a mm -hmm. good horror film or a good thriller. Um, I wound up changing agents, you know, and, and going to another agency. And it's, and it's real interesting because the first two scripts that they gave me, uh, when I went, one was, uh, surviving the game. Right. And the other one was seven. Really? Yeah. Interesting. And I read Seven, and I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that I knew Andy Walker, who wrote it, because right. Andy Walker had been a PA on a film that I shot in New York called Enemy Territory. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. And when I met with Andy, you know, it was like, hey, you know, but boom, you know, it was, it was great to see you and stuff. What, what had happened was, like, at that time, they were getting ready to throw the script out. Because nobody really? wanted to touch it. Everybody considered it too dark. Mm. And and so I went in and interviewed. And I thought I did a good interview. I mean, I had, you know, visual aids, you know, ideas, you know, how to shoot it. Mm -hmm. Bada boom, bada boom. You know, they said, what about the blood and gore? I said, you don't want to see it. I said, you pull back. You know, you just you just make the audience think they saw it. But just when you get ready to see it, you pull, pull away and put a boom. And I, and I put my best out there thought I did a pretty good job and then I went I left and then a couple of days later I talked to my agent my agent said well you talked your way out of a job I said how did I what what, what do you mean she said they were getting ready to throw that script in the trash you told them how they could make it mm. you told them that it could be a great horror film that it didn't have to be gory after you left, they said, see, we do have something here. We can get an A-list director. <laughs> we can get an A-list cast. Uh -huh. And I swear to God, I gave them the idea. I, I mentioned the idea that the older officer should be African-American. <laughs> and the younger guy, they said, who would I get to play the younger guy? I said, well, maybe Johnny Depp. I said, but I just saw this movie called Thelma and Louise. <laughs> and there's this guy in it, Brad Pitt. I think he's going to turn into something. I swear to God. Uh, I and, believe it. And my wife keeps telling me that I'm always a couple of years ahead because I'm always suggesting people that people say, no, 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 no. You know, nobody knows who he is. And then right. a couple of years later, you can't get him anymore. So, <laughs> so then the next, the other script that I got was Surviving the Game. Right. And that's the one that I did. Which uh, seems to be like the, uh, uh, the, Oh, what is what is the name of the classic '30s one? Oh, it's uh, it, it, uh, uh, Most Dangerous Game. Right. It, it's it's is it officially a remake of Most Dangerous Game? Uh, kind of like unofficial. 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 But you had it in mind. Uh, I mean, I definitely knew Most Dangerous Game. It was. Uh, I don't think I had seen the film. I remember right. we had to read the short story in high school. Um, I think if I ever saw the film at that time. That was still in the days of VHS. It would have been a really scratchy, bad VHS. Right. Now Criterion has a beautiful yeah. copy of it out. And this is from the 30s, from Ernest Schoedsack, yeah. who directed King Kong. Yeah. And so... Schoedsack and, and Irving Pitchell. And Irving Pitchell. Yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, but I knew the story and um, uh, went to New Line and... Um, and, you know, we, we put it together and I got a great cast. It was an amazing cast. And, um, you know, with uh, Ice-T and, 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 and Rutger Hauer and Charles Dutton and F. Murray Abraham, it was, it, was, it was a great shoot. I mean, F. Murray Abraham, I had so much fun working with him because, yeah. uh, 
you know, I'm thinking Salieri. I'm thinking, okay, he's going to be this serious, <laughs> yeah, yeah, serious yeah. guy. No. With F. Murray Abraham, you had to show up and have a dirty joke for him <laughs> every day. <laughs> every day he had to have a joke because he'd have one for you. Oh, perfect. And, you know, perfect. Yeah. and, he, and he was just so much fun. And, uh, and Ice-T was, was really a lot of fun. He was really cool. And it's really interesting because he made friends with Jeff Corey. Jeff Corey played his friend in the movie, the old guy that he's, that he's living with. And, um, and when I first got to where we were going to shoot it in Wenatchee, Washington, and Ice-T was there, and Jeff got there, I wanted to get the two of them together because they were supposed to be like, you know, buddies. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to get to know each other. They hit it off so well because they had both been blacklisted. Jeff uh-huh. Corey had been blacklisted in the 50s yeah. on the House on American activities right. yep. and ice T was being blacklisted because mm-hmm. he had written cop, cop killer. killer right. Yeah. So they really, you know, they really hit it off like that. They That's were, they pretty were amazing. Yeah. That's yeah. A, a rare brotherhood. I mean, there must've been at least 40 years, 50 years difference between their ages. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But you know, Jeff, you know, is one of those, old classic actors that you just remember seeing from way, way back. He's one of those guys where you go, oh, that's that guy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the owl-like face. You can't, yeah. you know, you can't miss that look. Yeah. Well, let's get into Tales from the Crypt Territory now. Okay. How did you make that move? And is, was this something you really wanted to do? I mean, the TV show had existed already. Mm-hmm. Had you worked on the TV show? No, I never did. But um, suddenly they're doing their first feature film, Demon Knight. Mm-hmm. And how did you come to be involved with that? I, um, I uh, got the script. Um, I was uh, in post-production on Surviving the Game. And... Um, and I went in and met with uh, Gil Adler and, mm-hmm. and Alan and um, uh, told them, you know, uh, how I'd like to make the movie. You know, you know, you do the your, your spiel, you know, when you're always right. going to sell yourself on making Get a tap film. dancing. Yes. And uh, and I invited him over because we were getting ready to do the sound mix, the final sound mix playback of Surviving the Game. Uh-huh. And I invited him to see that. And they came in and saw it. And, um, and that's how that happened. Um, I was, as I was surprised too, because, you know, it was totally different than, than the way the stories normally are told on, on Tales from the Crypt. It right. wasn't a comeuppance story. It was, mm-hmm. it was a mythology. It was an attempt to create a whole nother mythology around the key. Right. The half hour shows basically were punchline shows. Mm-hmm. I did one of those as well later on. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it, it's very much tongue in cheek. But Demon Knight is a straight ahead horror movie. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do a, a, a good horror film. And I had gotten some scripts, but I'm I'm, I'm picky. I'm a snob. My wife <laughs> always tells me I'm a horror snob. Yeah. You know, nothing wrong with that here. You yeah. know. But um, but this script really, you know, had something, you know, that I thought would really make a, a compelling film, and and a fun film, and um, and so we, you know, we we started putting it together. Um, and one of the main things that I first started doing was figuring out, okay, we have like uh, forty days, forty nights actually, because it all takes right. place in one night. Mm-hmm to shoot and i'm like oh 40 nights for the crew is gonna be murder especially if you got to shoot out in the desert (laughs) so i suggested is there any place we can shoot this indoors i mean can we build a a big stage someplace and 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 build it there you know and we actually found a a a decommissioned airplane hangar at van nuys airport i remember that's where i visited you yeah and um and it i think it just made life so much easier for the crew and they were so real so much into it you know because uh you know you could just shoot day for night you know Mm. and uh and we put together an interesting cast um, I had the honor of working with Mr. Miller, Dick Miller. Yeah. I, I grew up with Dick. <laughs> I grew up with Dick. And, and when I read the character of Uncle Willie, I said, I wonder if, you know, because, you know, you know, you find yourself in a position to maybe work with some people whose work you've admired or grew up with over the years. And Dick Miller was one of them. And he was he was he was cool. He was totally cool because I thought it was a great character for him, you know, and he, could, oh, yeah. and he yeah, had so yeah. much fun with it. And um, and uh, 
yeah, we, you know, we did it. Uh, well, and Jada Pinkett and Billy Zane and uh, Jada was, uh, I found out, was a huge horror fan as well. Yeah. Well, I had just seen Jada in Menace to Society. And I always had this image of, of that character, Geraldine, being this little feisty spark plug lady, you know, and and when I and I didn't know well, who's that going to be. But then I saw Menace to Society and mm-hmm. I said, ooh, I wonder if I can get her. And um, yeah, we did. And, and it was and it was great. Um, it's the first film that I directed that I did not have my mother in. Oh, <laughs> because I just couldn't figure out how to make my mother as a, 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 a one of the demons. <laughs> it would, that's what it would have to have been. You know, but, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm sure she's glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, but um, it it worked out really, really well. It, um, well, aside from all of the feature work that you've done really in recent years, you have been amazingly prolific in television. Television has become cinematic mm-hmm. in ways that it never was during our youth. Yeah. And um a lot bolder than feature films in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, you know, some amazing stuff being done on television now. I mean, with American Gods and, Just and Twin Peaks. Incredible stuff. And, yeah. and you were uh, a, a big part of Dexter mm-hmm. and Sleepy Hollow and The Walking Dead. Tell me about how that transition took place and, and what it felt like to, you know, you have to tell these stories much quicker, but they have production values that are like feature films. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting. It really started, you know, when I started doing um, The Wire, which was like one of the first shows I started doing, uh, it became very obvious that they wanted a filmmaker's perspective from each of the directors that came in. And um, and so, you know, they gave me the latitude to operate as a filmmaker. So by the time I got to The Walking Dead, shooting the first episode that I did, which is the next to the last one, and I'm just trying to get my handle, just trying to find my, 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 my way through it in the first day of shooting. And then it hit me. I'm shooting a Western. Ah. The Walking Dead is a Western. Yeah. And so that's the way I treated it from then on because... Television screens are, are bigger now than when we were growing up. It was a little box, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and it really limited what you could do with landscapes and, and environment. But now every, almost everybody has big flat screen televisions. Mm-hmm. Everybody has almost a, 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 a screening room in their living room. So yeah. Yeah. I just figured, okay, you know, really put, you know, really play up the landscape and put the figures in the landscape. And so you don't have to do close ups everywhere. Not all the yeah. time. No, yeah. no. And, um, and you can play, you know, um, a, a long moving, master with the composition shifts you know uh and um and you know that that was great having that trust you know because there is a television way of shooting uh which mostly seems to happen on network shows where mm-hmm. basically you know they just want you to shoot everything you do what gordon willis used to call the dump truck school of directing <laughs> where you just shoot everything you can think of coverage yeah i mean like over more coverage than you would ever use without a point of view necessarily um because they want to be able to shift it change it after that and it and it continues to this day well, the pro- showrunners are producer writers rather than directors. And yeah. They want to be able to have every option to make changes. But that seems to be more of the network shows because the cable yeah. shows really want more filmmakers. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I just did a, uh, recently I did a network show called Blind Spot, you know, and it was that, okay, after you shoot what you think you want, we want you to get extra stuff uh-huh. so we can like, you know, if we want to recut it later. As opposed to another show that I did called Seven Seconds right after that, which wanted filmmakers. And, and it's amazing because the, the, the executive producer said, if you, we like to have scenes done as wonders. If you can come up with some really interesting wonders, nice. we're cool with that. I, and I love doing wonders. You yeah, know? yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting filmmaking. So you get that difference. But that was what was great about uh, Walking Dead and that, um, they wanted a, a, a filmmaker's perspective, and and um, and it was it was fun physically. I can honestly say The Walking Dead was probably the most difficult show I've ever done. I've heard that it's a grueling show. Yeah, just because Georgia in the summertime, <laughs> Georgia in the summertime with the heat and humidity, 
and then in the woods with ticks and chiggers uh-huh. and everything, you know, dealing with them, you know, it uh, got a little crazy. But it was, but it's a great crew, great cast, a real family, a real family atmosphere, and and I always enjoyed it. I just got out of the rotation. Mm-hmm. Which is okay. Well, we finally got the chance to work together on Masters of Horror. Oh you? man, I had so much fun doing that. <laughs> that was, that, I can honestly say, that was the perfect situation. I really enjoyed that. Well, it was a script that I had written mm-hmm. and uh, called The V Word. Did I ever tell you how that script came about? I think you did when you were a kid. It was, it was actually a few years before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cynthia and I and a couple of friends went to a mortuary on a Halloween night. Ah. And this friend had a friend who worked at the mortuary. He was the night manager. And there was nobody there. And he said, do you want to come up on Halloween night alone in the dark, go upstairs and go see behind the curtain? (laughs) And it's exactly what I wrote uh, in the way that it was presented. You walk down this hallway, he turns on the lights and they just, a a row of... uh, overhead light bulbs Uh and then we went into this one room and at first it's like this is kind of exciting it's creepy and stuff and then it just became heartbreaking it was horrible because on on one slab there was a sheet covering an obese woman's body Mm. and on the slab next to it was an infant's hand sticking Mm. out from under the sheet Mm. and it was like this isn't fun Mm -mm. and Mm. it that's what became the basis for the v word for the v word right yeah yeah Yeah. that yeah wow well i haven't had that kind of a no i've never told that story yeah (laughs) i've never that kind of a i mean you know the, the closest I've ever come to anything like that was doing the medical photography thing because, you know, right. had some pretty horrible things that we saw doing that. But, um, but wow. But that was, uh, man, you know, you really gave us so much support and so much encouragement and just gave us. I even let you bring somebody in to rewrite me. <laughs> <laughs> but you were such a you were such a director's producer. Being well, a director, you know, you know, and, uh, thank you. Um, and, but it was such a great experience for me and to be able to have guys like you come in and do whatever they want mm-hmm. and and to be able to protect you in that way. Yeah. And just say, this is yours. You yeah, know? that and, was that was so much fun. That was so cool. And, you know, for me, though, the best thing about it is that I made a lot of good friends. Because yeah. the, the other masters, you know, meeting the other masters and having those dinners. The dinners were pretty amazing. Was, was really, really cool. I mean, you know, still stay in touch with, with quite, I mean, actually Toby Hooper and I are, yeah. are hanging, you know, we're cigar and, and bourbon drinking buddies, <laughs> you know. And, and he comes over to my house and we hang out. And uh, Great guy. And Don Casarelli, I, I saw, he came to the 25th anniversary screening of the film and and just seeing the the masters and and just you know being in contact with those guys it's uh for me it's an honor because i love being in touch with folks whose work i i, I admire and who who've always touched me so you know well it's really kind of a brotherhood that we didn't know we existed you mm-hmm. know it's the the gutter snipes we we managed to be able to to hang together and yeah. and it's a really kind of emotional experience every one of those dinners that we have yeah i mean you know it's it's been you know some of the some of my greatest experiences those dinners you know becoming friends with joe dante good friends yeah. with joe dante yeah. but i can honestly say that somehow i guess it contributed but i had the most amazing thing happened to me. I had dinner with Roger Corman at mm-hmm. his house. Mm-hmm. Roger made me a martini. Oh my God. I had two martinis made by Roger Corman. <laughs> I mean, now I can die and go to heaven. <laughs> I know, you're sitting in the chair we interviewed him in. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, no, we did that live. <laughs> we did that at a festival. Such a great man. Such so, great man. what's coming next for you? Um, well, I just got through writing uh, some scripts. Um, and, and the picture you made to, in Curacao well, the movie I made in Curacao, Double Play uh, it premiered in January at the Rotterdam Festival uh, so we're trying to get American distribution it's a, it's a, it's a foreign film it's an international film nice. shot in English uh, international cast, international crew that we shot in Curacao so we're trying to get it here um, and we'll see what happens we're, 
It's 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 a it's based on a novel that's totally unknown in the U.S. but mm. but more well known in Europe. It's more it's a uh, book of the year in Holland. Wow. You know, um, it's required reading in schools in Holland. Um, it's it's more widely known in Germany and in France. You know, but totally unknown here. So that is a little bit of what we have going against us trying to get it set up here. But we're we're working on it. And just trying to, you know, get the next, do the next movie. I mean, after doing so much television and going back and doing a, a feature film, an independent film, I was like, I got spoiled again. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. You know. All right. We just have a couple of questions from our Twitter feed and we're at Postmortem MG. Graham asks, were there ever plans for a sequel to Demon Knight? If so, where would you have taken the franchise? There weren't. They're not officially. Um, I always kind of like, in my mind, played with the idea it would be great to see the further adventures of Geraldine, you know, being followed by the demons, you know, because now she is the demon knight. Um, but when they made Bordello of Blood, I think a lot of people thought that that was going to be a sequel. Right. And, I th- and I remember hearing in one of the, the preview screenings, people were disappointed that it wasn't because mm. my editor, Steve Lovejoy, was the same editor on Bordello. And... Um, uh, he said that people were disappointed, so they did put the key in there to try and carry it on, but I understand it didn't work. Richard asks, uh, moving from Spike Lee's to DP to directing, was there an expectation for you to do similar types of movies to what you had done with Spike? I don't think so. I think, uh, uh, I think I pretty much defined what I wanted to do with my first film. Uh, and I've, never been an apologist for wanting to stick to genre. I think genre just allows you to do so many things and, you know, maybe tell some of the kind of same stories that Spike does, but in a different setting, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, look at something like Get Out, you know, that's a great genre film, but, you know, talking about relevant issues. Yeah, it's a really good. um, Daniel says, I'd heard that on Surviving the Game, one of the crew members was an ex-militia doomsday prepper and that there's a good story about him. Can you share it? There, um, ex, well, there was a security guard that we had because we couldn't get the police to provide security for our production because Spike, I mean, because, uh, Ice T had done, uh, Cop Killer. Oh. So we gosh. hired, so we hired a, uh, a security guy who turned out, uh, had been an ex CIA operative. He had, it was amazing how, how I found this guy because, uh, I'm, I'm explaining how I wanted to do this scene one time and he's sitting in the back of the room and he's the kind of guy, it's interesting, he was the kind of guy, if you ever saw him walking down the street, you wouldn't look at him twice. Very, very nondescript kind of a guy. And when I described how, you know, killing this guy, afterwards he comes up to me and says, you know, you got that just right because that's the way I felt first time I had to kill a man with a knife. Oh. And I said, really? I said, what did you have to, where, how did that happen? And he says, well, I used to do work professionally. And he said, and he said, the gun that you said that, that Rucker Howard should have, that's not the kind of gun he would have. I said, well, what kind of gun would he have? He said, come on out, I'll show you. Takes me out to his car, opens up his trunk, pulls out what looks like a little toy gun, rifle. He said, this is a Steyr Aug. And I said, he said, I used to use this in my line of work. And I said, and you can't tell me what your line of work is. He said, I can't tell you. All I can tell you is that I traveled a lot. Oh, man. And and then, you know, first day he wore shorts. He had bullet holes in his legs. And uh, he was an interesting guy because when we would show up to the set every morning, there would be dead rattlesnakes because the place we were shooting at had a lot of rattlesnakes. So it was his job to take a high a high position so he could keep his eye on the ground around us with his rifle ready to shoot a rattlesnake if he saw one. So he was a snake sniper. He was a snake sniper. <laughs> but he also gave us really interesting information about how Rutger's character would prepare a, a, an ambush area. You know, how he would paint his face black, but then paint the area behind him black out of like, you know, the, the burnt oh, timbers wow. of a campfire. You know, little things like that. Very interesting guy. And he actually wrote a couple of interesting books um, about how he had been gone into trouble in Vietnam. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. 
Well, that's a good story to end on. Well, it's so great to have you, and thanks for joining us on Postmortem. And, uh, it's been a lot of fun, man. It's good seeing you again, too. Likewise. Take yeah. care. All right. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.